As, as some of you know, um, we record my homilies and then I, I have this podcast. And uh, it's amazing that people want to listen to me again. That's amazing enough. But every time I upload it, I have to think of a title. And you know, I got to give the homily a title. And uh, usually I do that late Sunday afternoon if I, after I wake up from my nap, which is much easier now given how the Packers are playing. Um, <laughs> that's another, not that that's a painful subject for me at all. Um, but last night, prior to giving my homily, the theme of, the, of it came to mind. And so if there, were, if there is a title, it will be the title of this homily. It is this, how big is your God? You might say, well, there's all kinds of theological problems with that title. Yes, but that's, it's great for a title anyway. But thematically, you'll understand why, why that title, how big is your God? Because I think we make our God, God, kind of small, pretty small. And particularly when it involves salvation. And this is what we're talking about today. So today we celebrate the solemnity of Christ the King. It's the end of the, the church year. Next Sunday is beginning of the church year, of course, uh, the first Sunday of Advent. And at the end of the church year, the focus becomes eschatology, the end times, the eschaton. And uh, so we, we have these readings and themes about that. And it's interesting, I think, that on Christ the King, which is a day to really celebrate, right? I mean, we have the psalm response, which is really upbeat, and, and it, which is fantastic. Chris did a great job on that. But the, you know, the, we should be kind of up about this because... Jesus is king, he's king, he reigns over sin, he reigns over death, he's victorious over all of that. And the reading, though, is him on the cross. It's him on the cross, which seems, you think, well, why wouldn't it be like Easter or something? Well, it's because the cross is both, at the time, an instrument of torture and death, but it becomes, for us, and we wear it around our necks. We have it, in our, of course, in our churches and in our homes, the cross. It becomes for us not that. Jesus transforms the cross from that into a throne, into a symbol of victory and a sign of his enduring love and mercy for all of humanity. That's what it means to us. That's not what it originally meant to those at the time, but that's what the cross means for us. And of course, it's what it meant for Jesus. And because we're talking about then salvation, we're talking about people, you know, presumably going into heaven. And then we say, well, all right, Jesus is king of the universe. He is savior of all. He is the Messiah. He is the way to salvation. He's also the only way to salvation, as the church teaches. And the church teaches that because he taught it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. He is the gate. He is the shepherd. He is the so many, you know, the vine and the branches, on and on and on, all these, all these metaphors. Jesus is the only Savior. There's only one way to get saved, and it's through the Savior. Which, if you're like me, inevitably, immediately, I shouldn't say inevitably, immediately, I start asking questions. Just always been that way. And so then I start asking, well, okay, well, if he's the only savior, then what about all the people who don't know him? 
What about all the, all the Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and, and whatever, you know? I mean, there's so many different religions. And further, what about people who, you know, used to practice the faith but now don't? What about all those people who are unbaptized? What about my grandchildren? Not mine, of course, but yours. What about our grandchildren who are not baptized, our family members who aren't baptized? What about, you know, your own children who maybe aren't going to church? What about people who are, you know, still atheating, right? They're, they're sort of atheists, or maybe they're just agnostic, which is usually the preferred thing, just sort of laziness about it all. What about, what about, what about? What about all of that? How can they be saved? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to end up? Are they all going to hell? What about Democrats? They're clearly going to hell. <laughs> I said that last night and this guy came out. He was so mad. I think he's a Democrat. And I'm like, it's not a joke about Democrats. It's a joke about Republicans who say that nonsense. You know, it's like we would actually say that. Um, I had this, uh, it's, it's also extra funny for me because one of my mentor priests uh, when I was in seminary was just a yellow dog Democrat. And uh, we'd argue all the time. And he would call me a godless Republican all the time which was unfair because I was an independent. But um, I'm sure he's having fun burning with the flames. Uh, and if you knew him, he would laugh at that joke. Um, but of course, it's a very serious topic, and it ought to be. But a little levity sometimes helps. Um, but we say these things about our opponents often. Or we say these things about people we don't think should get in. Right? I mean, even after this last election, a number of more conservative people saying things, pretty awful things about people they thought didn't vote the right way. And um, it's really kind of horrible what we say to one another and what we actually think might happen to each other. And we really need to think that through, I think. I think, think, think. Now, hell itself, let's talk about hell. Inevitably, somebody's going to come out, but well, they won't now because I'm mentioning it. But every time I bring up a topic like this, somebody comes out and they're like, I've never heard a priest talk about hell. To which I say, are you new? Because it comes up. But anyway, let's talk about hell. So the, the next question is, well, how do we have an all-loving God, an all-powerful God who wants all of us to be saved? He's very clear on that point. How do we have hell? Why do we have hell? Why does it exist, right? I mean, if he's so forgiving and so loving and so merciful, doesn't he get everyone in? Maybe. The reason for the existence of hell is necessary. It's a necessary condition or reality of the Lord giving us freedom. If he gives us freedom to choose him, he gives us freedom to not choose him. And so the reason hell exists, which the Lord seems to be fairly clear on the point that it does, that the reason for its existence is simply there has to be a place for people who don't want God at all, that they resist God, they reject God definitively and for all of eternity, much like Satan and his minions. There has to be a place for such people if they actually exist. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. That the people in hell don't want God. It's not that God has consigned them 
In a sense, he has, but it's more so that he gives them what they want. He respects our freedom so much that even if we don't want him for all of eternity, he will give that to us. And that is the last thing he wants to give. But because of the great gift and dignity and magnitude of freedom, he will even allow that and respect us that much. So the existence of hell, you know, the church has always stated, is, necess- is a necessary outcome or outgrowth of that freedom that God has given. There has to be a place for people who would choose against God for all of eternity. What's interesting is the church has never said anyone is in hell. Never said it. Not that maybe it should matter that the church has said it or not, but it is interesting that the church says, yes, hell exists, but has never said anyone is there. Now we presume Satan is there, but any human person is there. It's actually okay to believe, uh, if, if, if you need the okay from the church, but it's okay, it is not inconsistent with the teachings of the church to believe that everyone is in heaven. It's not incons- inconsistent. Now, I don't know if that's true. We don't know if that's true. But I hope it's true. I really do. You know, my experience as a priest, I, I, every week, numerous times a week, I am with people at the moment of death. All the time. This week, I don't know, three or so, anointing people at the end or very, very close. And I'll tell you, in that moment, um, I don't know, just for myself personally as a priest, I sure hope that the Lord is saying to them, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, and I tell every family member, I gave them the full deal. I gave them all the prayers, all the forgiveness. They are good to go. Trust me. Anything I can do, they got it. And yet there's a temptation, especially today, you know, when we're so polarized. And unfortunately, that's not just political. It's also religious. We're seeking to make these radical distinctions among us. The haves, the haves nots, the good, the bad, the ins, the outs, those going to heaven, those going to hell, as if we could know. But to justify ourselves, to make ourselves feel right, sometimes we say things that we have no right to say and should never want. Even if we have political opponents or religious opponents or people just in life we don't like, we should never will their condemnation. And yet I think sometimes we very quickly move to that. It's something we've seen, you know, historically in the church and in churches and everything else because people have a need to be right. It's a sort of insecurity. If I believe that I, you know, if I believe as a Catholic that I need to be right, you can't be right too. I just need to be right and I'm going to defend the faith, etc. The faith doesn't need us to defend it. Well, yes, it does. No, it doesn't. God doesn't need your defense or mine. It's nice to be able to explain some things, to understand some things. But one of the problems we have, and it's a particular feature of Western civilization, is a need to know every little thing. This is where I go back to my theme. How big is your God? Don't you think God has taken all of this into account? He created everything. 
He knew there were going to be Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and, you know, all of it. He knew all of it. He knew that your grandkids wouldn't be baptized yet. He knew that your kids wouldn't be going to church, you know, yet or as as frequently as, as they ought to. He knew some of you, and so do I, skip church from time to time. And, and he and I love you just as much. And he loves you even, of course, he can do it perfectly. That doesn't mean he doesn't want you here. But that doesn't mean that he wants you to go to hell. How quickly we can kind of jump to that. How quickly we want to be able to make this distinction about the good and the bad. Interesting thing, what we do know, we don't know how God, so we know that Jesus is the only savior. We don't know how does it gonna work with non-Christians. We don't know, and it's okay that we don't know. What we do know is God wants everyone to be saved, and he's God, and he usually gets what he wants. We know that much. So we, we don't have to figure it out. Well, Father, how does it work? I don't know. Why do we have to know? We don't have to know. But of course, you know, we, we, we tend to get into this This insecurity of, well, I'm doing things the right way and they're not. Okay, maybe. But what do we know about Jesus and how he reacted to that sort of dynamic? Remember the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, they were doing everything the right way and they made sure everyone knew it. We're good Jews. We follow the law. We do this all the right way. And those people don't. And Jesus, you're hanging out with them. You're having dinner with them. You're, you're in, their, in their homes and you should not be. The Lord had no time for that attitude. In fact, he didn't even want to spend very much time with those people. All of the good people, all the people doing it the right way, he had no time for them because really they had no openness to what he had to bring them. If they didn't need a doctor they wouldn't need the divine physician. If they didn't recognize that they lacked, then they couldn't be filled with what he brought. But everybody else could because they knew that they had a lack. They knew that they weren't good enough. They knew that they needed God. And over and over again, Jesus says the same thing. These are the people I came for. And so it's in our best interest to identify with those people. This is why I'll say to us every once in a while, this is a church filled with bad Catholics. This is none of us are good enough. And it's not about that anyway. We could never make ourselves good enough. It's only God who can make us good enough. And the reality is he doesn't really need us to be good enough, as it were, We're already good enough. Now he's going to spiffy us up and work some things out and, you know, chop off some loose ends here and there. And sometimes it's painful. So he's going to fix us up. But at our very creation, he has created us good. And he bestows his love and mercy and grace upon us continually. And so today we celebrate redemption and salvation. The only thing it takes, Jesus is clear on this point, the only thing it takes to receive it is to accept it because it's a free gift. You can't earn salvation. There's nothing, there is literally nothing you can do to be saved because Jesus did it for us. He's the one who did everything. 
all, if there's any doing, the only doing is accepting what is freely given, which doesn't take a whole lot of doing. And the only ones who unfortunately won't get in are really the ones who just don't want to. And I pray that in the end, and I'll tell you, I see it all the time. There's not a single person that I see at the end who doesn't want Jesus. So brothers and sisters, do not be afraid for your grandchildren or or your children or yourself. The Lord has it figured out. How? I don't know. He has it figured out because he's God. If anybody has it figured out, he has it figured out. He knew that the world would be the way it is. He knew that your family would be the way it is. And he knew that you and I would be the way we are. And it's all been taken into account before we were ever created. And as he died on the cross because of his great love and mercy for us. So today, let us rejoice. Let us truly go rejoicing. We are in the house of the Lord. And let us pray that every single person at the end of their lives, Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. Please stand.